this issue, violence against women and girls, why should this be something the church cares about and indeed does something about? Yeah, so the first reason that I'd say on this is that God loves women. Now, that might sound really obvious, and I'm just going to say it again so that we're really clear. God loves women. And I think the reason why we have to keep remembering this is because there are women and girls out there who think that they are secondary, think that God thinks that they're some sort of afterthought. You know, we heard yesterday Rachel Hickson say from the platform that as a 17-year-old girl, she wondered whether God used women. She wondered whether that was the case. And there are women outside and inside our churches who wonder if they're of value to God. And God loves women because both male and female, both men and women were created in the image of God. Both are image bearers of God. God has created us for relationship, for right relationship with him and for right relationship with each other. And God has created us for right relationships that don't include harm and abuse and control and coercive behavior. And again, the reason why I'm talking about that is because the highest proportion of violence towards women is perpetrated by somebody who's meant to love that woman. Not by strangers. We imagine that it's always strangers in a dark night. And of course, those situations do happen. You know, we'll all remember the uh, awful case of Sarah Everard being murdered. But actually, the majority of cases of violence towards women are committed by somebody who was meant to love that woman. And relationships weren't designed to have that uh, harm and abuse in them. And so God has come to redeem and restore relationships uh, amongst, between us and God and amongst each other as well. I believe that the church is well-placed to respond to this issue because we're there in the community. We're there in relationship with other people. But it's really important that we don't imagine that this is a situation that only happens outside of the church. And so part of the reason why we need to be the people who are responding to this is because these aren't just situations that are happening outside in the community, beyond the church walls, but actually there are situations happening within our churches. And uh, you will have people in your churches, if you think about the statistics that I shared and, and the statistics of people who uh, are survivors of domestic abuse, you will have people in your churches who are survivors. You will have people in your churches who are in existing abusive situations um, and are not sure whether they can say something in church. I'm not sure whether they can talk to somebody about the situation that they're in. And so as well as being a witness to the love of God, the fact that God loves men and women and that God has come to restore our relationships with each other, we also need to be witnessing outside, but we need to be making sure that our own house is in order and that we are actually paying attention to the fact that this stuff is happening in churches. Uh, there's a charity called Restored who uh, work to equip the church in responding to situations of domestic abuse. And they conducted some research a few years back with uh, the University of Coventry and the University of Leicester. And in the region that they study, the, reason, the region that they did their research in, they found that the uh, rates of domestic abuse were the same inside the church as outside the church. There was no difference. There was no difference in the prevalence of this stuff taking place. And so we have to pay attention to this because it is going on in our churches as we speak. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Sarah, Catherine talked there about relationships. And can you just talk for a little bit about um, how the church can best 
um, raise this, talk about this, and also model those healthy relationships? Yeah, so, I mean, the church should have the, the front row seat on this. Like, we should be modeling healthy relationships, shouldn't we? Like, we should be right at the front. You know, it says the world will know you're my disciples when you what? love one another when we are looking out for one another and and yeah I, you know I think sometimes when we talk about healthy relationships it's such a nebulous kind of thing we know we ought to love each other we know we ought to kind of um take time to do that but we never because we never take time to define it we never know if we've made it or not and I think one of the things that would be really good um that we can do as you know local church leaders is actually define what is it that healthy relationships look like in our churches what is it that you and I can do and we can what, what is missing? And then also to do a really honest reflection of our churches, a really honest reflection, not just, you know, you and your elders, but actually across the board of your church. What does um, health look like and how are we doing? Like, what, what's your, you know, grabbing hold of some people that are new to church, grabbing hold of some people that are new to faith, people that have been through some stuff. How can we do things better? And so I think once you've defined what health looks like and once you've uh, kind of looked at and taken an honest assessment of where you're at, then you can begin to put meaningful steps in place. So you can put, begin to put meaningful things around you and, and making sure those things are really, you know, measurable so that you can stand before your church and say, you know, we are working on this and this is what we're doing and this is how we're doing it and this is our commitment. Because when as a church leadership you can say this, is our commitment then you, you you begin to kind of change a culture and we've got to be those that that change a culture that change a, a rhetoric and I, so I think those things are really important and I think you know there are specific things that we we've got to be careful to do as you know healthy relationships we've got to be careful around you know language that we use um Catherine's written a fabulous blog on raising women leaders three parts to it totally recommend you you go and read that because it's more than just raising women leaders. It's about creating a culture, an environment where we say, hey, every person is loved. Every person is important. Every purpose has kingdom, kingdom purpose. Well, and Malcolm, I want to come to you. Sarah actually was just talking there about language. <coughs> and there was a situation a little while ago um, in the church that Catherine and I lead in Cardiff where um, there was a lady who felt that biblically she couldn't do anything about this. She just had to endure a situation of domestic abuse because of teaching that she heard elsewhere about forgiving. And this issue of um, forgiveness, a biblical topic, um, but it's often been um, misused, misunderstood, maybe even miscommunicated in the church. Can you just talk a little bit about how we can talk about forgiveness and communicate well on this, um, bearing in mind situations of violence against women and girls as well? I think it's really important that we do not um, paint the idea that forgiveness is, is about forgetting what has happened, about not holding people accountable for what has happened, and by assuming, uh, or by assuming that forgiveness is a non-changed, you, you just walk out of a situation and say, well, I have to keep forgiving you. Things like the repetition of bad behavior, the misapplication of Jesus' teaching, forgive seven times 70, is, um, is profoundly problematic. And uh, both from a, first of all, from a biblical perspective, that is not what forgiveness is. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness is not 
the eradication of responsibility. Forgiveness is not the avoidance of consequences. Forgiveness is not endangering somebody again and again and again. And even when one applies the theology of forgiveness and its redemptive power to Christ, in his unique responsibility as Savior, he endured things so that we would not endure them. And there is a, 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 a fundamental, there's a fundamental need for pastors not to preach forgiveness in a way which sounds as if it does not involve accountability. Yes. It doesn't involve naming the issue. It does not involve letting somebody off scot-free. It doesn't involve um, delegating the responsibility where necessary to bring charges against someone. Um, it does not involve telling a, a human being that they are to enter back into a continually abusive relationship. It doesn't involve telling them that they have a biblical mandate to obey their husband in that context or in, in a context that is anything other than a misappropriation of the concepts of um, mutuality within the context of the New Testament. Some years ago, um, well, no, more, more recently, when the Me Too movement began to emerge, I created an anonymous system within the church that I lead for women because they wouldn't just stand up and say Me Too. But I, I created a context where women could anonymously respond and say, yeah, me too. Our church has six or 700 people. 80% of the women had experienced wow. some level of violence against them. Some years ago, um, I was leading the largest Baptist church in Europe where a book called Leadership as Male had been written and where there had been a very strong doctrine of um, male headship. And one night when I was there at one o'clock in the morning. So this is not something that is happening somewhere else. Yeah. And our church had been taught that forgiveness meant let it go. Don't do anything about it. And over the space of four years, I retaught issues of forgiveness. Two dozen historic issues mm -hmm. where, where, where men who were doing this. And I don't, I'm not suggesting the complementary theology leads to this. Mm -hmm. But I am saying categorically badly taught complementary theology yes. leads to this. Mm. A bad theology that misunderstands complementarianism leads to violence against women. Yeah. And it needs to be yeah. named. Now, within the context of my congregation, there were a range of things that I have tried to do for many years. So it's really awkward. And it sounds as if it's a nothing. But I can remember the first session meeting of nearly every church I've ever led the first time somebody says something that is derogatory about women, and they nearly always did, there would be the normal. <laughs> and I would say, actually, I don't, I don't do that. Mm. I don't laugh at women. Yeah. I don't make derogatory comments about women. Please don't do that in my presence. Mm. And please don't do that in this session. Yes. Please don't do it from the pulpit, because if you do, I will correct it. Yeah. Please don't do it in small groups. Yeah. Now, normally what happens is there's a very strong reaction from the men. Oh, you're just, you're too, you're. But actually, they, they very quickly change their tone and their culture. And, and, and this is, I hope I don't sound patronizing. Please forgive me if it sounds patronizing. But I think when it comes to violence against women, particularly in local churches, which still in Elam are predominantly led by men, men have a responsibility to stand with women in this yes. and to be a voice mm. and to put up yes. with the consequences and the responses of men and women. Because they should not have to, women should not have to have this fight alone. Yeah. It's because they have not been heard 
And I'm not saying that women aren't equal to me. I absolutely believe it. But I think I have a responsibility as a local pastor, mm. as an elder, and mm. as a part of a movement to stand up and say, I, don't, I won't tolerate. So mm. if people do that here, and it yeah. happens in the pulpit here yeah. in conferences, I will go to them afterwards yeah. and say, please don't do yeah. that again. It wasn't funny. Yeah. And, and, and exactly the same. We, we, we have the yeah. same um, rule so here. Those yeah, types of yeah, things. Yeah. Malcolm, I'll actually stay with you because you just touched on it, and I'll, I'll, I'll um, um, then um, address my next question to the other panelists. You were talking there about um, the role of men, and it's great to see men here because violence against women and girls isn't simply a women's issue. It's an issue for all of us, uh, as you've said. Um, and just uh, building on what you've just said there, could you give us some practical ways in which men can be effective allies um, on this? I think, listen. I think um, in your own family, think carefully about your biblical patterns of roles and responsibilities and be careful even if you do believe in male headship and I recognize that I, I, I don't share that view but even if you do neither believe, do I <laughs> even if you do believe in that be ultra careful that your understanding of male headship is not simply western European male dominance redressed in biblical language be very careful not to tell women or girls that their place is dot, dot, dot. Be careful about how you conduct yourself in those conversations. And I, I maybe, maybe this is wrong, be honest enough in your own self-reflection to recognize that you may have done that. I think I've done that. Uh, and and, and I, I think we all do that. Or many men do that without realizing it. And naming that and asking women to help you not do that and modeling something about accountability and humility in that is important. I think men can also speak out when you see it happening at work, when, you, when your daughter comes home and tells you something has happened, when you see it happening in your community, when you see it happening in church, stand up, use your voice, be willing to be unpopular, be willing to stand with women, and listen to their stories, and be careful not to put the reputation of your community before the well-being of a human being who happens to be a woman. Be careful not to use, and I think this is a particular issue for us, the theology of honor mm. has become, in Pentecostal and charismatic churches, expressed in such a way that it's actually a theology of subservience and to question someone is to be labeled as disobedient or rebellious. Actually, honor tells the truth. Honor names something. Honor is not afraid to say, well, I need to honor you by saying what you did was wrong. And that model of leadership is wrong. And, and how you treat women. And if, some, if a woman ever comes to you and tells you, it's the same as anybody that comes to you to say to you that they've been abused in any context or situation, as an abuse survivor, when they come and tell you, do not let be your default be, oh, we're going to have to protect this, we're going to have to hide this, or I don't believe you. Yes. Let your default be, I believe you, and I will listen. Because that woman may have taken 15 years to say something to you, and your response 
could, get to, could determine whether she ever says anything to anyone else again. Just from what Malcolm was saying there about how men can be effective allies in these kind of situations. Um, so Malcolm used the phrase standing with women. And there is something, you know, domestic violence and, and any sort of violence against women is a, a complete distortion of relationships. And in the root of it is power, have one person having power over another person that isn't their right to have. And the idea of, a, of men standing with women is an incredibly restorative picture of what relationships should look like. And so that men and women are both standing together and speaking up and standing up against small and, and big uh, instances of any kind of harassment or, or violence against women. And so I think it's really important that with, because the posture that women need men to take in this is not the alpha male will protect our women from this. That's not the posture that's needed. The posture that's needed is a standing with exactly what okay. uh, Malcolm described. What does it look like for us to talk about issues like consent and abuse in relationships with young people, young people in our churches, for example? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because this is something that is really important that we do talk about in the first place with our young people. Uh, historically, we've got a bit of a reputation amongst the church, haven't we, that um, the kind of the, the topics that we talk about with our young people when it comes to relationships is be careful not to have sex before marriage. And then we just stop there. And that's about it. And that's as far as we get in relationships. But actually if we're going to really talk to young people about what it is that they're facing, we've got to understand um, the situations that they find themselves in. I mean, you know, looking at, at domestic abuse, the highest rates are actually amongst young people, 16 to 19-year-olds. That's where the highest rates are. The second highest rates is 20 to 24-year-olds. So this is affecting our young people. Are we helping them and talking to them about what, what does abuse in a relationship look like? How do you recognise coercion and manipulation and control? How do, you, how do healthy relationships like Sarah was talking about, what do they actually look like? Do we talk about that in our youth groups and, and with our young adults? And, you know, where we feel, maybe if we don't feel particularly equipped to do that, then bring some people in because there's some great organisations that can support us to do that. You know, our young people are... I'm often at the forefront of talking about justice because uh, they get it. You know, I'm, I'm really excited about our younger generation because they really do get justice. They get that this is on God's heart and we've got a responsibility to, to help shape and disciple and encourage and cheer them on in the pursuit of justice. And the reason I mention that is because this is an issue of justice. This is a, an issue of justice that we should be championing because God is just. You know, the reason we do justice, the reason we care about justice and righteousness is because God is just and righteous. And so we're made in his image. We're created. We're image bearers. And so doing justice uh, and, and part of that is making sure that we are involved in tackling violence against women. And I think making sure that our young people know that this is something that we care about and that we believe that we have a responsibility to talk about, but also helping them in thinking about their own relationships and how they recognize and identify and tackle some things. You know, our young people, for, for many of us in this room, um, we haven't faced the kind of things that some of our young people are facing. We haven't had uh, some of the access to uh, digital information. You know, our young people are in school surrounded by friends who uh, access porn on a regular basis on their phones. You know, this, this wasn't the case for many of us growing up and we, we, we didn't have that kind of bombardment of sexualization and, and images and uh, things that, you know, in terms of fighting off, it, it, it often was thinking about how do we make sure that, you know, in terms of our relationships that uh, outside of marriage is, is kept, particular things. Um, how are we understanding what our young people are actually facing? 
are we actually listening to them about what happens in their relationships? Are we, are we listening to them about some of the things that they're facing in their schools? Do they feel safe enough to come and talk in youth groups and say, this is what some of my friends are talking about. They're using words that maybe they don't even understand yet. You know, what does this actually even mean? Are we open enough to talk about that without shutting them down and saying, well, that's wrong, we shouldn't be talking about that. We have to help our young people in understanding uh, what abuse looks like, what violence against women looks like, and that we have a stance against this and that we care about their relationships. Thank you. Sarah, I'll come to you. Uh, as pastors, what... Uh, should we do if someone discloses to us that they are in a situation of violence or domestic abuse? Yeah, I, I think this is so important. And, um, you know, you only have to, I don't know if any of you have listened through the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and kind of just your heart breaks, doesn't it? Like when these situations are so poorly handled. And, um, the fact that you are in the room would tell me that this is something that's important to you. But, you know, what I'd say to any church leaders is, you know, don't wait for someone to disclose something before you get informed. Be informed about what's going on. Be informed about what uh, domestic abuse um, constitutes. It's not just the physical harm. It involves coercive control. It involves, you know, economic. It's social. It's, it's, so, it's so broad. And um, make sure you and your pastoral teams there that you know what resources are out there. You know there are some great charities, as Catherine's mentioned a few, that are really will do training, will help you. And, and I think it's really, really important. So I think the first thing I say is kind of be proactive to be informed. Uh, the second thing I'd say probably is, is I don't think as a pastor I have ever gone into a meeting going, I'm going to meet with this person and uh, they're going to disclose something to me. I, I, I've, I've never had that. You know, it, it, disclosures of information nearly always come at, oh my goodness, this is, um, you know. And so I don't think we're always ready. And uh, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, I'd taken my little daughter, I've got a four-year-old daughter, I'd taken her out in, a, in her scooter. I'd promised her a special drink. And uh, so, you know, being the parenting ace, we ended up at Burger King, I promised her a drink, so I've got her like a drink and I've got her some fries and, you know, I'm sorry, it's not the most healthy snack, but it was where we were. And a couple from our congregation walked in and started to talk to us, and I didn't really know them that well. And as they were beginning to talk to us, I was like, oh, like this is, this is a big situation going on. And uh, I've got my four-year-old scooting in Burger King, wearing a crown, going, I am the Burger Queen. <laughs> on one hand. On the other hand, I've got a really tragic, tragic, tragic situation being disclosed to me. And, uh, you know, you've, as pastors, we've got to do the best we can in those moments. We've got to just hold them as, as, as tight as we can. We've got to uh, embrace those people. And, and, you know, I couldn't. Uh, sort everything out in that moment so I, I you know but you know I did the best I could and then followed up and uh, spoke to Danny in the office and we contacted you know 31 31 8 
we got advice, we, we kind of did all the things. So I think, you know, know that these, these moments don't always come when you're ready for them, but when they come, you, you've got to stop and listen. Uh, we, I, had, I was speaking to one of our young adults this week. I went out for coffee with her, and she was telling me how she's just left her workplace because um, of a, uh, just a, an environment that, where she just was so uncomfortable. Um, and she said to me, Sarah, I've failed. And I was like, failed you've not failed you've stood up for righteousness you you know you've stood up for the right things you you've succeeded because you've not allowed that in your life and so I think we really have to as Malcolm was talking about stand with um those make sure you obviously you know your safeguarding procedures are so important you know please don't just pay lip service to a safeguarding policy know your safeguarding policy stand along if you're ever in doubt call 318 call elam speak to some people get some advice if there are immediate issues you will of um potential risk of life you need to act immediately especially both the women but if there's also children involved and often there are children involved and so i think we just need to be ready to act but i think also this isn't an issue if someone discloses something to you you're gonna within a day you're going to have fixed it. Like, that's not the case. We're going to need to walk with these people, walk with them through their situation, walk with them alongside their situation and build them back up again. And so I think we've got to take time. Great. Now, Michelle, I do have a follow-up question, but I'm going to go to Malcolm first because purely for the reason that you've got to catch a flight back to Ireland. Um, and I did want to just hear your thoughts on this. And it would have um, been fine, except that Brid- Leeds Bradford are saying allow three hours to get through security. Yeah. That's the only reason that I'm having to go early. So let I'm me so um, give a final question for you before you, uh, you shoot off. Um, how do we, as church leaders, deal with the perpetrators of violence against women um, people who, who are maybe in uh, historic situations or, or, or present situations, how do we minister in that? I think they have to face the consequences of their actions. And um, we certainly do not seek to bypass the consequence of their actions without going into the details. In Northern Ireland, um, there are a couple of very high profile um, situations right now that I'm dealing with of violence perpetrated by ministers or ex-ministers against women and those ministers have sat with me and said for the gospel's sake can we keep this quiet and I have said for the gospel's sake you will go to court and you will face the full rigor of the law does that mean that you are outside of the redemptive purposes of Christ not at all does that mean that um, your relationship with Jesus will be barred not at all does it mean that you will not preach in our churches? Yes, it does. Does it mean that, that we, will, we will walk through this process with you? Yes. But if you are found guilty, you will face the consequences of your actions. And I think that any, any situation of violence against women, any situation of, of illegality, I do not understand in any way how church leaders can say, Let's avoid the legal consequences in our society of those actions. That's not a gospel response. And in that moment, even if the reputation of that individual is broken, this is going to sound like I'm a really harsh person. I'm not. That is not my fault. 
And that is not the victim's fault. I was a founder of Stop the Traffic, the global um, anti-trafficking movement. Um, I, I remember sitting in an office with a friend, writing the three objectives of that global campaign against human trafficking, which is majority women, not all, but ma the majority of women. And one of the key elements of the advocacy campaign of that is to prosecute the perpetrators. And I think we need to make sure that perpetrators are held to account for what they do and that they understand that restoration is possible. But restoration doesn't look like getting back into a pulpit. Restoration doesn't look like going back to your wife. Restoration doesn't look like being allowed to do it again or being placed in situations of vulnerability. Restoration looks like you being humble enough to say, put safeguards around me so that I never do this again. Sarah shared some really practical advice as to what we can do when someone discloses. But sometimes there are situations as pastors where the person doesn't disclose, but we suspect. Yes. Um, so what do we do if we suspect someone is in an abusive relationship? How might we go about handling that? Yep. So I think um, for me in our church context, what we've done around this issue is make sure there's posters around the building that our pastors know where they can uh, take someone online. So in Cheshire, we have a, a, a website that the police and social services have worked together to um, organize. So it's a little questionnaire. So somebody comes in and they're not, often people play down what they're experiencing or don't speak about it at all. They can go into this questionnaire, answer some questions, and it will at the end say to them, well, you are experiencing domestic abuse. Or actually some of, um, often what comes up is, actually some of the things you're experiencing um, suggest this. You need to take some action before this escalates. So I think we, we would do those things as a team. And, um, but I think there are those situations you said where you're suspicious that something's not right. And I think what we have to do is create opportunities to sit down with people, create spaces um, where people can disclose if they want to. But I also think the posters are really important because actually if your husband's a deacon, if your husband's the treasurer, that's so hard, isn't it? You know, Or if your pastor's on team in a church, it's so hard to go and say because actually a, one of his roles and something he's very attached to um, is it, it, going to change if you disclose. So actually sometimes the, the sort of pointing people to other services helps in that and making sure people know that there's other places that they can go it may not be easy um, for people to disclose in church what's happening we might think oh yes of course church is the best place for them to disclose but I think you know when I chat to our director of adult social care she says you know well Michelle the churches are really really naive you're always wanting to think the best of people so therefore, you're always playing stuff down, diminishing it, and um, praying it away, you know. And actually, this stuff, you know, I don't want to diminish prayer, but, but actually it is about really holding people to account on this stuff and, and making sure that there is behavioral change and that there is illegal action if there needs to be legal action. So I think we perhaps have to change our mindsets a little bit as we meet with people and make sure that people know there are other sources of help 
because they may not find us the safest place to disclose. They may have seen somebody else in church life try to disclose something and actually it backfire on them. So, so let's actually work in partnership with the other organizations. So we in church would know that there are some local charities that specialize in this. So actually maybe get people help in those charities and walk with them as they access those services. Um, but also my experience is, you know, sometimes we can have a few stereotypes about social services and the police. And... Okay, some of those may be justified at times, but actually there's been a huge move forward. And um, my experience of sitting on the safeguarding boards is that there are people who passionately care about these issues and have expertise. And so let's connect in. All of the safeguarding partnerships have websites, um, information upon them that we can access and get help. There's 318, there's charities like Restored. There's so many places we can go, but we must do something you know if we're suspicious let's let's meet someone for a coffee make sure that they've they're connected into a group um that that there are perhaps people who touch base with them who have experienced and those issues themselves and perhaps testified about it in our churches and let's give the space and opportunity for people to share if they possibly can and then let's pray let's pray that the light shines and there's transformation in these situations as well. Do we need to rewrite the marriage vows in light of some of the things that have been said? You know, the marriage vows talk about love and obey, for example. For some churches, they would use a woman promising to obey her husband. Um, that doesn't have to be the case, by the way. So as a church minister, that is not law that you have to say that. Uh, you have a choice. So uh, when Dominic and I got married, uh, that's not what I promised. Um, and the reason we took that decision, we did actually have a conversation about which marriage vows we were going to use. Uh, and we took that decision because we take seriously Ephesians 5.21, that we're to submit to one another. Uh, we believe in mutual submission. We believe in um, mutuality in our marriage. Uh, and so we felt it wouldn't have been appropriate for one of us to promise to obey the other uh, without that kind of mutual submission. Um, I think having a conversation, you know, if, if somebody is due to get married, talking to them about what options are available, because, as I say, that isn't in law that you have to say that. How can leaders navigate the narrative between God hates divorce and then guiding women to know when it's time to walk away from an unhealthy relationship? I think my quick answer is the Holy Spirit, <laughs> because I, I do think... Um, you know, I, I, I do think there is that. I, I, often the individual themselves feel this enormous pressure to stay. And um, and I think sometimes there have been times when I've had to sort of say to people, that's not your only option. You, you know, actually, um, God's heart for you isn't to live in this situation, to be harmed and, and to be oppressed. And, and I think that's hard for us as church leaders when we have to say that stuff. There's a soul searching, isn't there, of like, am I, am I you know, ministering the best? Am I ministering the truth? So, so I think there's a listening to the Holy Spirit in those situations and really seeking, seeking God. And I think actually sitting alongside people praying through these issues and bringing others alongside them who can also pray um, is really important. But I do think we have to listen to the discernment of the Holy Spirit. And I, I believe um, Holy Spirit doesn't... <laughs> 
you know, it's not supportive of of people, anybody um, being in a an abuse ongoing abusive situation. Just to add to that, I, th- I think sometimes um, it's going on a journey with someone because you know they've been in that situation for a while, and so I, you know they're not coming to you for an answer there and then; they're yes. coming to you for a journey. And so it's like being able to have that conversation and actually talking about how God sees them and talking about that wisdom and going on that journey and saying, "Come on, this is," and and allowing them and to, you know you can present the options, and ultimately they've got to make their decision about what they believe God is speaking to them. And so it's just creating that environment that you can support and nurture what God speaking to them and sometimes you know as, as ministers and people who are ministering to um, people who are very broken very hurt very damaged you know um, you know sometimes it comes back at you <laughs> you know that's the reality of it and I can think of a situation where I was on that journey you know and and gently and nicely sort of said you know this isn't your only option and it was the right thing to say in that situation um, uh, but it did come back at me. The individual was very angry with me as a church minister that I could actually say um, to them that, you know, you can get divorced. And I think that is where it's good to minister in teams so that if you say something that someone finds challenging um, initially, you know, actually there's some other people in the conversation supporting who can pick up and mm. then, you know, you can step back with a bit of a pause and as some fresh air, you know, probably they'll start to see that what you said was from the best perspective. So do try and minister in team Great. in this as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so important that we don't allow individual Bible verses to be yeah. used that we, we, just like with the topic of forgiveness, yeah. that we have a holistic um, mm-hmm. theology. And, and, and so that's, that's really important. That's and actually, I'd encourage you to, to talk about this um, from your pulpits mm-hmm. and, 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 and teach to, with a view to forming that holistic theology. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah, can I come to you? Someone says, um, I was in a church member's house recently. I heard a man tell his wife off in a derogatory manner. I was shocked, but what authority did I have? I'm not their pastor. So, you know, if I'm not a church leader and I see this in a church setting, what can, what can I do about this? I mean, I, I think, unfortunately, I think most of us have probably experienced something like this at some point. And um, I think the one thing not to do is ignore it. Uh, that's the one thing that's not the good option. I, I think there's lots of other options. And, you know, if that you're at their house, I think you've got the opportunity, you know, to, to take, um, in this situation, the wife out um, and actually to spend some time say, hey, I, I, I saw that. Is, is that normal? I was a bit upset about that on your behalf. How how. Is there anything I can do to support? Is there anything I can do to journey? You don't have to be a pastor to be a friend, and you don't have to be a pastor to speak life and hope into someone. That you know, and and your churches need every person in the church to be championing life and hope and standing up. That's what we're called to do: stand up for the rights of those that don't have a voice. You know, we're called to do that. We're called to uh, permission that. And if you've got an environment in your church where your congregation members don't have that permission, you need to change that because we have to have church members who have the permission to speak life and hope. So good, so good. Thank you. And one of the things that we've um, been talking about is moving from safeguarding policies to a safeguarding culture, you know, and actually across the whole church that there's a culture of care and that we're looking out for one another. And and that's exactly what you were just identifying there. 
uh, any general observations or tips on dealing with this cross-culturally uh, when there are maybe stereotypical um, views on male and female roles and where, where they're fixed? Uh, how can we deal with, with this issue in cross-cultural contexts? Yeah, so... As with many of your churches, our church has uh, many different nations. We love the fact that we are a genuinely uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic church. Uh, we have over 50 nations represented within our church. And so we've got people who come from very different viewpoints, experience, backgrounds, uh, family life. Uh, and that's not just because of a country of origin. Actually, you know, we'll find in our churches that we have people who have a, a range of experience, a range of upbringing, a range of messaging. Um, one of the things, you know, Donnie just mentioned there about things that we, we speak about from the platform, things that we preach about from the pulpit, things that we teach about. Uh, this is a topic that we have to be talking about in lots of different um, opportunities. And so, you know, does our marriage prep include a conversation about recognizing abuse? Does our marriage prep include a conversation about mutuality and uh, hierarchy in relationships? You know, do we talk about things on our marriage courses? Do we talk about things with our young people? Are we preaching from the platform and including some of these topics? Because um, one thing that, you know, you, you learn in, in leadership is that you can never over communicate. And so, you know, we've got to make sure that we keep talking about some of these things, but also, not just from platforms and in teaching situations, but around dinner tables. You know, Sarah was just talking then about, you know, being in a situation that, that everybody has authority to speak into other people's lives if they're in relationship. And that's one of the key things is, are we building relationships in our churches with people who might not have the same background as us, with people who have, might not have the same experience as us? Um, but actually, you know, building relationship with people gives you an authority to be able to speak into their life and, and reciprocally, you know, they, they can speak into your life as well. And so making sure that we're actually talking about these things, that it isn't something that we stay silent on or um, are embarrassed or awkward or, you know, this is just too big for us to even uh, broach, so we, we just stay silent on it. Actually, we just need to talk about it and make sure that we actually address things and educate ourselves as well. You know, I'd really encourage uh, people to read and to listen. You know, we, you've heard some recommendations of books and podcasts. Um, read about this and, and listen about this so that we learn more about it and we build our confidence in being able to talk about this as a topic. You know, you don't have to be an expert in every culture. Like, I often go into these situations thinking, oh, I, I don't feel qualified. You know, I don't know that I know everything. And But you can ask questions. Well, why do you think that? What's, you know, I remember speaking to a beautiful lady who was in a situation where her husband was... Um, openly having affairs with other people and, and it was so difficult and I'm sitting there going that's that's outrageous and she's like no no no, no that's normal and I've uh, you know if I speak to my family they tell me just to kind of sit down and and just serve my husband properly like that's what her family tells her. and and so you you know walk in and I, I'm not the expert on that culture but I can ask questions mm. and I can present what God thinks and what God's heart is for her that's what I can do yeah. um, and you can do mm. that too yeah praise God for all the cultures um, but ultimately it's kingdom culture and biblical culture, which we, which we submit to. Well, our time is gone, but can I ask uh, Michelle and Sarah to, to, to pray to press? Um, Sarah, we, we, we've heard the staggering statistics that one in three women have experienced this, and, 
And so even statistically, maybe even here in this room, there may be people who are um, uh, navigating this issue who ha or who have, and just want to pray that the Lord would minister to them. And you've heard about some of the, the practical pathways and talking, talking to pastors or, or others. So just to pray in that regard. And then, Michelle, would you pray for um, church, churches represented here, church leaders, across our Elam movement, that this is going to be a, an issue. Wouldn't it be great, something that Elam, we can raise our voice on, on this issue, on this issues of justice like this, and be a leading voice in this, and a transformative voice on this. So Holy Spirit, we just invite your presence here. You know, we don't want these head conversations to be aside from your spirit. Your spirit's here with us. And so thank you for your spirit. And Father, if, if anything that we've been speaking about has... Uh, cause discomfort in anyone here in the room right now. Father, well, I want to pray that, God, your presence would come, that, God, your presence would be with them, that, God, you would give them courage to speak, to have a conversation. Father, I pray that every person in this room would know they are valued, they are loved, they are chosen, they are a child of the King. And, Father, we just want to pray, God, would you uh, help each one of us walk in that? in all the different situations and for the, for those of us who who maybe this it touches nerves from some past wounds that we've walked through god would you come and bring your healing we invite the healing presence of jesus and we open up our hearts and say holy spirit whatever it is just come and heal come and touch come renew come deal with all those things Lord, help us be a community, even as we go through this afternoon, that love each other and pray and see the kingdom of God uh, at work in each other's lives, no matter what the story. Amen. Father God, we pray for our movement. We pray for each and every church that's um, part of EFGA or EIC. And Father, we just, um, we just come before you and ask... Lord, that you give us eyes to see and a heart to, to respond, Lord God. Father, pray that we'd never get caught up um, being fearful, Lord God, about doing the right thing. But Father, we would just have your wisdom and your discernment in every situation. And compassion, compassion, Lord God, to minister to those who are, are hurting. So, Father, we think of Elim being that safe place in the wilderness where the people were able to have rest. And, Father, we want to see that in our churches, that, that our churches, each and every one of them, however big, however small, wherever they're situated, Lord God, Father, that they would be a place where those who are struggling with violence in the home, Lord God, could find rest and support and renewal, Lord God. So, Father, we ask that you do a work in each one of us, work in our hearts, bring this up our list of priorities and strengthen us, Lord God, to do what's right in your sight and see people helped and see people rescued from harm, delivered from harm. In Jesus' name, amen.